Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio I know we had some words last time But that was so long ago I got your message It was a little harsh, you know It's still a little hard for me to hear Please take it slow Welcome to Starship Sofa Part of the District of Wonders Network Featuring tales to terrify And far-fetched fables Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Show by everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to Show 592. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Today's show, we have Daddy's Little Girl by Jennifer Donahue, originally published in Sandex and Salt. We also have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. We're looking back at genre history. That's all coming to today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now then, just want to mention just a, 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 a slight little thing there, what I am absolutely loving. And it's got nothing to do with science fiction. It's crime fiction at the moment. Me and my good, me and my, there we go, there's good writing for you. My good wife was sitting down and we're watching The Bridge, a Swedish-Denmark crossover crime noir TV show. And oh, has anybody seen, am I just, it's subtitled. It is, and I've only really watched, you know, not many subtitle shows. It was Amy that got us in the dark when that came out. Now, Amy says as well, and when she was handing over our, handing over our documents for this show, that Dark Season 2 is soon, how <laughs> exciting, to be upon us. And I mentioned this to Amy that, you know, we're kind of right into the, the bridge. Has anybody seen it, man? <gasps> With with crime drama or you know TV shows over here, especially like Vera, it has been a murder pet. You know, I'm like, you guess it. You know, it's it's obviously him. It's him. It's him there, right there, right there. And it is, you know, like someone who's hovering on the fringe. 
of the, the actual episode. But with the dog, oh man, I'm all over the shop. I'm just pointing at anyone, you know, in the end, I'm like, well, it's got to be them. It must be them. And it so catches you unaware. It's so cleverly done. It's just, it's a hundred times richer than any other show I've seen. You know, and, and the, the, the subtitles don't come into it at all. Do you know what I mean? Let us know if you're watching it. Because it's, it is so rich with the depth of, of, like, I love character-driven stories. And, oh, God, man. Like I say, even, you know, the subtitles, it's by far one of the best things I've seen on TV. Is anybody watching it? Let us know. Starshipsover at gmail.com. So back into science fiction. Come on, where you been going, Tony? We will get into this now. Daddy's Little Girl by Jennifer Donahue. Like I say, originally published in Santax and Salt. I think that's how you pronounce it. Jennifer R. Donahue grew up at the Jersey Shore and now lives in central New York with her husband and her Doberman. Yes, Jennifer, we're on. We, that's all. We, that's our dogs as well. Where she works at a local library and facilitates a writing workshop. Her work has appeared in Daily Science Fiction, Escape Pod, Truancy and Lunar Station Quarterly and elsewhere. Her novella, Room with the Hundred, is available on most digital platforms and she tweets at. There's a little blog there for you, for you to go, a little link to go there. This story is narrated by Heather Thomas. Heather slings jewellery by day but is an inspiring voice actor by night. Her high school year, she was classically trained in opera. But now, just mostly sings karaoke. Oh, Heather, Heather. He, my radio station, is tuned to Classic FM. Yes. Heather's one narr- other narration, shall I say, can be found on other fine podcasts, such as the Simple Scary Podcast, the Creepiest Podcast, the Wicked Library, the Lift, Tales to Terrify, and Pseudopod. She lives in Denda, Colorado, with her husband and her two evil cats, Muffin and Banana. So, the Starship Sover is very proud to present. Daddy's Girl by Jennifer Donahue. Narrated by Heather Thomas. One. When I was born, my daddy didn't come home from war. But the army sent a drone, hand-sized and with tiny little pincher arms, in a broken sealed box. Inside... The lid had, Daddy's Gonna Watch Over You, written on it in Sharpie, and the drone was wrapped in a keffiyeh. In the email, he sent Mama pictures of himself without showing where he was, because that's what war is like. Normally, they couldn't even send paper or especially packages, but it's an exception when a baby is born. Mama told me that it was our neighbors who brought the package into the hospital and she opened it while I was napping red-faced in the corner bassinet, worn out from the whole ordeal of getting born. When the drone whirred into life, it hovered in front of Mama's face for a minute, waving its little pinchers like it was getting a feel for the world it found itself in. Then it went to my bassinet, and hovered there, too. The rotors were a soft, soothing hum, and Mama tried to get it together and read the printout of all the features, but I started crying and she gave up, tucked the wad of paper back into the box. Nobody needs to read the drone instructions anyway. They always worked right out of the box. 
The drone went back and forth between her and me until she'd gotten me picked up and settled on her boob. Babies cry, she said to the drone. You gotta relax and understand that it don't mean they're dying. Two. When I went to kindergarten, my daddy didn't come home for more. But the drone followed me like a puppy. I draped dandelions over the top of it in a golden crown and put a pencil on one of its pinchers. I wore the keffiyeh like a cape, even though it didn't go with my princess dress and glitter shoes. We all sat in bright plastic chairs around circle tables and traced our letters next to cartoons about the good things soldiers do to keep us safe from the bad guys. Lots of kids' mommies or daddies were soldiers, but no other kid had a drone all her own. My daddy was smart and important, and that was why I was special enough to have a drone of my own. The classroom smelled like plastic, crayon wax, and pencil shavings. Miss Libby said it was okay for me to have my drone. It just had to live in my cubby when class was running. It was allowed to come out at naptime and playtime, and I could hear it clicking to itself there in my cubby, so I didn't miss it too much. It took pictures to send to my daddy in the email, and he sent pictures back of kids at the local village playing soccer with soldiers whose faces we couldn't see. Mama was sure one of them was my daddy. My daddy was tall and handsome like Prince Charming, and Mama told me about how he took her to prom in a limo she didn't know he had the money to rent. He was already enlisted and headed to boot camp after graduation. Mama's dress was green, like the Emerald City, and my daddy got her white roses for her corsage. She still had the roses, dried, hanging on the corner of her mirror, and the silver shoes were boxed in the bottom of her closet, and I clomped around the house in them when I played dress-up. The dress was sealed in plastic, but she told me I could wear it sometime special, just not to play. In the early days of the war, before I was born, they were able to talk to each other on the internet and in video chat. As the war went on, they tightened security. And that wasn't okay anymore. Just the email. My daddy emailed a lot. Told us lots of little stories about everything but the war. Like playing soccer or getting ice cream or watching movies the army sends them. I wasn't always old enough to see the movies, but Mama was. And they sometimes emailed back and forth about this thing or that, real fast before his internet time ran out and I got bored and fell asleep in Mama's lap, the drone clicking a lullaby in my ears. Three. When I got lost in the woods behind our little house, the last woods for miles around, Daddy didn't come home from war to look for me, but the drone was there and flashed its tiny LEDs and used the keffiyeh like a big old flag so that Mama found me right away when she came looking. It was smart enough to know the way home, but it wouldn't leave my side unless I told it to. I was too scared to tell it to. I sat on the ground and thought about what it would be like if my big, strong daddy came and found me in the woods 
and the dark trees with the green moss that grew up the trunks like ladies' dresses. But I could only think of him in his prom clothes or his army clothes, and neither was right. Mama was crying when she found me, one of the only times I ever saw her cry, and she carried me home even though I was getting too big. We had ice cream for dinner and stayed up late watching cartoons. We fell asleep together on the couch under a fuzzy blue blanket. When we woke up to go to bed, Mama took me to the window first, where the pale full moon looked in. We waited and watched until the space station passed by, a bright point of fairy light in the sky. And then she showed me how to find Orion's belt. The night before my daddy deployed, he and Mama stayed out all night with a bottle of champagne, naming constellations to each other. When they saw a shooting star, they wished for me. Sometimes Mama calls me her star baby, and I hope she always calls me that. Four. When I joined the soccer team, my daddy didn't come home from war to see me play. But the drone hovered over the field and recorded everything. It wasn't the only drone in town, sure, but it was the one with the best camera, so my coaches loved it for training. The first kafia wore out by then, and I cut it up into bandanas to wear over my braids for luck. My daddy seemed to know how long that kafia was going to last me. He already sent a new one with a lady from his unit. She'd lost her leg, so she'd got to come home for more. She was still getting used to the robot prosthesis when she gave me the new kafia and told me what a role model my daddy was for her. Mama offered her a coffee, which she took but didn't drink, and she didn't stay long either. When she left, Mama watched out the window until she drove away, then took the cold coffee and poured it down the drain. We won state that year, and the next. The drone wasn't allowed to record the big games. I guess most places other than my hometown have stricter drone laws, so I could only email my daddy the articles from the paper. He told me he was proud of me. Everybody signed the game ball with a sharpie, and I tried to send it to him, but the army refused it. It's all about security. But I don't know anybody who really understands security. When the game ball came back in the mail, me and Mama took it to the school, and they put it in the trophy case there. Five. When I was old enough to learn how to drive, my daddy didn't come home from the war to take his car out of the garage and explain the clutch to me. Mama did that, white-knuckled in the passenger seat while the car bucked and stalled out. One of my daddy's old friends helped, too, and they got it through my head that the clutch was a gradual thing, not an on-off switch. When I could finally do it, Mama was so happy and we drove on the back roads all afternoon with the windows down, whooping and hollering, the drone tailing us and waving its little arms like it was happy. We got drive through for dinner, three towns over, and even though I wasn't supposed to drive at night, she still let me drive us home, 
the old cracked asphalt turned liquid silver in the moonlight. Six. When I got my job at the pizza place, my daddy didn't come home from the war to order a slice. He told me in the email that pizza was different when he was a kid, and everything changed so quickly. Pizza used to have wheat crust and real pepperoni, though honestly he couldn't tell me what kind of meat pepperoni was supposed to be made from. I used the kefia as a scarf on cold nights delivering in my daddy's old car, and the drone buzzed up ahead of me to watch out for ice and car accidents and cops. Mama made me a thermos of coffee those nights and stayed up late till I was home. Sometimes when I got in the house, she was just sitting at the computer, cursor blinking in the email as she tried to find the right words. It's not something she set out to teach me, that there weren't always the right words. But I got the lesson anyway. I was the only girl delivery driver they had, and sometimes the girls who cashiered at the restaurant asked me if I felt safe. I had the drone and my daddy's old hunting knife and didn't much think about it. It was my hometown. And how much bad stuff ever happened to pizza people? I had the best delivery record in the franchise. I used my tips and the bonus for a new transmission and tires and put the rest in my college fund. Seven. When I graduated high school, my daddy wasn't in the stands, though Mama and her new boyfriend were. I tucked the kefia inside my cap, and the drone recorded the whole thing, trailing streamers. My daddy emailed that he was proud of me, and as a present, he emailed me the title transfer for his car. Since the divorce, he and Mama didn't do the email anymore. So sometimes I've passed a message between them, but more often not. They just ran out of words for each other, I guess. He wouldn't have any talk about it. Instead, we talked about the car and soccer, though with the job it was hard to keep the practice hours on the school team. Sometimes I talked about boys. I wore Mama's emerald green dress when one of the other delivery drivers took me to prom, and he kissed me in the starlight except we didn't see any shooting stars. Shyly at first, and this wasn't anything I told Mama for a long time. Mostly I talked about girls. A girl I played soccer with who went driving with me. A girl from the next town over I met at a church social, who tasted like strawberries and gave me a fake phone number. My daddy said he didn't have any advice on how to pick up boys anyway. So it was kind of perfect that I liked girls better. Eight. When I went to college, my daddy didn't help pack the car for the move. I got scholarships from the pizza franchise and from the army. I just missed the soccer scholarship, the college coaches told me but they got girls in from other countries where soccer was more important. I could understand that. I still made the team, I just wasn't a starter. I had my tip money saved and a job lined up in the new town, four states away. I had the drone, which charged in its little station every night, 
or attached to the cigarette lighter in the car. It had a few little dings in it, and the casing wasn't so shiny anymore. But it always ran, whirring and clicking, like a music box that couldn't quite find its tune. The army tuned the drone up once a year or so, sometime sooner if a component's upgrade got released. The army guys let me hover anxiously over the repair table when they worked, but it was a good model, built to last, even though most of the other drones around were cheaper than mine. Disposable tech was a thing of the past. I didn't like to think about what it would be like if the drone wasn't dogging my steps, flying ahead of me as I drove, turning off lights at night when I went to bed. I didn't want to think about tipping it into a bin at recycling. 9. When the first college break came, I didn't go home. Not the next one either. Mama and her new boyfriend were moved in together in our little house by then, and I had my own apartment, job, friends. My daddy wasn't going to be home anyway. I stayed at college and I delivered pizzas and my drone flew sentry like it did at home. I threaded the keffiyeh through the belt loops in my jeans and cut the sleeves off my delivery shirt. I wore my hair short, gel-specked on top. I had an almost girlfriend, who I met during freshman orientation. Sometimes she waited on my back porch when I got home from work. Sometimes we put out a blanket in the backyard and looked at the stars into the night, pointing out constellations and satellites to each other. Sometimes we had the drone make us drinks, a little cocktail sword in its pincher. Sometimes we kicked a soccer ball at the quad, or played frisbee with a big group of people who never seemed to stop playing frisbee. There were ice cream socials, even though it was just frozen yogurt, or maybe soy. I wondered if I'd ever had real ice cream. When I asked my daddy in the email, he didn't know either. I thought about calling Mama to ask, but it seemed too silly. 10. When the attack happened, my daddy didn't come home from the war to visit me in the hospital. Mama did, alone. And she helped me move home, alone. My girlfriend wasn't my girlfriend anymore. And she left school after that. Maybe got a boyfriend. The EMS said it would have been worse for both of us, but my drone had a taser that it put to use after calling 911 with its onboard wireless. The Army never told me that. When the police and ambulance came, part of the fraternity's pledge class was crumpled on the sidewalk. Their hoodies were pulled up tight, baseball bats on the pavement next to curled, bloody hands. I could have worn the keffiyeh to cover the scars or grown my hair out again, but I didn't. Nobody asked me about it, any of it, not even Mama. I told my daddy about it in the email, how for a couple of weeks they'd been yelling things at us, though nobody else ever noticed or cared, that there'd been a car outside the apartment a couple of nights with the lights off, 
which always peeled away at some point, leaving a cloying, burned rubber smell in the air for hours. Howie walked hand in hand and heard them on the sidewalk behind us and didn't know what they were going to do. How we just thought it was a group of losers trying to scare us, not hurt us. My daddy told me that sometimes being scared hurts too. My daddy told me he loved me. Told me he was sorry. Eleven. When the war ended, my daddy didn't come home. I tried to be patient. I waited. I asked him. I begged him. He told me he was figuring the best way to explain. The drone clicked and whirred around me, and finally bumped into a closet door over and over until I opened the door. Took down the box the drone came in. Daddy's gonna watch over you, the lid said on the inside. Sharpie doesn't really ever faint. The drone landed, pinched at the flaps to expose the cardboard it had nested in. I don't know why I had never looked at it before. Since for all those years, Mama kept the box and I kept the box. I pulled out the cardboard to find the instruction manual. And there was a yellowed envelope in there, too. A trifold document with an army seal. It is with deep regret I am writing to inform you. I looked at the drone. The drone bobbed, clicked, and whirred. Twelve. When I was born, my daddy came home from war, but not in the way anybody expected. He wanted to watch over his baby girl, and the army made that happen the only way they could. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, 
You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And there you go. And there you go. What was that? I got a bit me tongue. Don't forget. Copyright is Jennifer. Jennifer, thank you so much. Honestly, thank you indeed. And Heather, it's lovely to have you on the show. Oh, what a lovely voice. So we have our very own, yes, I'm calling her my own, Amy H. Sturgis Ames. Hello, my friends. It is time for another look back into genre history. And today I'd like to give credit where credit is due. A big audio high five to Library of America. Now, I'm not going to lie, in the past, I have used Library of America sometimes as a symbol of a kind of gatekeeping mentality about big L literature, or literature, as I sometimes call it in class, meaning what is considered respectable and venerable and classic, as opposed to, of course, speculative fiction science fiction, fantasy, horror, works that, because they are stigmatized as genre, really have to fight for every shred of dignity and credit, and, of course, respect, that they can possibly get. To be fair, Library of America's self-description, its purpose, as stated on Library of America publications and the website, really does enhance this notion of the gatekeeper, right? Of, at least in the United States context, deciding what is worthy literature. Here I am quoting Library of America's self-description. Quote, Library of America, a nonprofit organization, champions our nation's cultural heritage by publishing America's greatest writing in authoritative new editions and providing resources for readers to explore this rich, living legacy. Widely recognized as the definitive collection of American writing, Library of America editions encompass all periods and genres, including acknowledged classics, neglected masterpieces, and historically important documents and texts, and showcase the vitality and variety of America's literary legacy. Additional public programs, digital resources, and community partnerships help readers worldwide make meaningful connections with the nation's written heritage. End quote. Pretty tall order, right? And for a while, I've got to say that Library of America played into my notions of genre never getting any love. Um, For example, there were works that we would consider gothic. Uh, The second and tenth volumes published by LOA include Nathaniel Hawthorne's Tales and Sketches and Collected Novels, respectively. And the 19th and 20th volumes were Edgar Allan Poe, first poetry and tales, and then essays and reviews. Uh, They're not only a gothic author, but a straight-up science fiction author, but a classic author, a respectable one, right? And after that, there was a long wait for anything that looked like genre. But I am happy to say, wow, has LOA ever turned it around. It's an exciting time to have your eyes on Library of America. After Volume 20, Edgar Allan Poe's Essays and Reviews, it was a long wait. 
but volume 103 was Charles Brockton Brown's three Gothic novels, those being Wyland, Arthur Mervyn, and Edgar Huntley, edited by Sidney Krause. And I've talked in the past multiple times about how the Gothic really was required for the formation of science fiction as we know it. Then, another pretty long wait, but after the success of Volume 155, which was H.P. Lovecraft Tales, edited by Peter Straub, well, the hits just kept coming. 173, 183, 193, all Philip K. Dick collections. Uh, four novels of the 1960s, The Man in the High Castle, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and Ubik? Then... Five novels of the 1960s and 70s, Martian Time Slip, Dr. Blood Money, Now Wait for Last Year, Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, and A Scanner Darkly, and lastly, Valis and Later Novels, A Maze of Death, Valis, The Divine Invasion, The Transmigration of Timothy Archer, all three volumes edited by Jonathan Lethem. Then, 196 and 197 were American Fantastic Tales. The first volume, Terror and the Uncanny, From Poe to the Pulps, and the second volume, Terror and the Uncanny, From the 1940s to Now, both of those edited by Peter Straub. Volume 204, Shirley Jackson, Novels and Stories, the Lottery, The Haunting of Hill House, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, and Other Stories and Sketches, edited by Joyce Carol Oates. To 19, Ambrose Bierce, The Devil's Dictionary, Tales and Memoirs, a great early weird fiction author there, edited by S.T. Joshi. Volumes 216, 226, 252, and 273, all Kurt Vonnegut. Um, novels and Stories, 1963 to 1973 is the first volume. Cat's Cradle, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. Slaughterhouse Five, Breakfast of Champions. The Novels and Stories, 1950 to 1962. Player Piano, The Sirens of Titan, Mother Night, and Stories. Then novels 1976 to 1985, Slapstick, Jailbird, Dead-Eyed Dick, Galapagos, and novels 1987-1997, Bluebeard, Hocus Pocus, Timequake, all of these edited by Sidney Offit. If you're looking to get into Library of America editions, the place to start for science fiction fans is volume 227, American Science Fiction, Four Classic Novels, 1953 to 1956, edited by Gary Wolf. This collection is extremely satisfying. It captures a unique and rather troubling, as well as troubled, moment in time, while showcasing both the depth and artistry of the best of classic U.S. science fiction novels. The Space Merchants, Frederick Pohl and C.M. Kornbluth, a witty, biting dystopia about issues that are as relevant today as in 1953. My students eat this book up, including advertising and commercialism, overpopulation and limited natural resources. It's a compelling read that rewards revisiting. 
Five words from you and half a million consumers will find their lives completely changed. That's power, Mitch. Absolute power. And you know the old saying, power ennobles. Absolute power ennobles absolutely. Ah, what a great novel. It also includes Theodore Sturgeon's More Than Human from 1953, a lyrical, poignant look at homo gestalt, the gifted freaks who together form a brand new organism, the next stage in human evolution. It's a fascinating and often genuinely wrenching thought experiment about prejudice, cruelty, love, empowerment, identity, and belonging. Sturgeon's work is deeply disturbing with brutal and beautiful purpose. Next in the anthology is Lee Brackett's The Long Tomorrow from 1955, a really bleak look at a U.S. dark ages in the aftermath of nuclear apocalypse. The main character, Young Lin, flees the suffocating anti-intellectualism of his new Mennonite home, and he fights against constitutional restrictions forbidding the reestablishment of cities before reaching his goal, which is the secretive Barterstown, where science is supposedly free and unfettered. Barterstown's reality, however, doesn't quite fit its legend. The Shrinking Man is the last story. That's by Richard Matheson from 1956, and it tells the story of Scott Carey, who because of an exposure to a cloud of radioactive spray shortly after he had accidentally ingested insecticide, ends up shrinking at a rate of approximately one-seventh of an inch per day. He encounters all kinds of perils as he diminishes, from a drunken pedophile to sadistic street toughs, from the spider in the basement to the elements themselves. But this is first and foremost a psychological novel, about the uncertainty of the individual in the 1950s and individuals' places in the possibly futile, certainly alien, post-war world. What he wanted to know was this. Was he a separate, meaningful person? Was he an individual? Did he matter? Was it enough just to survive? He didn't know. He didn't know. It might be that he was a man and trying to face reality. It might also be that he was a pathetic fraction of a shadow, living only out of habit, impulse-driven, moved but never moving, fought but never fighting. Good stuff. Now, these novels were written to unsettle, to uh, discomfort, to provoke thought, and they do so with success. I really recommend this to anyone who is a fan or student of science fiction. And the companion volume, edited by Gary Wolf, American Science Fiction Five Classic Novels 1956 to 1958, that's Library of America Volume 228, is also wonderful, including Double Star by Robert Heinlein, The Star is My Destination by Alfred Bester, A Case of Conscience by James Blish, who by Algis Budras, and The Big Time by Fritz Leiber. And the exciting news, these two volumes came out in 2012, and guess what we have to look forward to in 2019? More from Gary Wolf. American science fiction, eight classic novels of the 1960s in two volumes. These will include Paul Anderson's The High Crusade, 
Clifford Simak's Waystation. Oh, how I love that book. Daniel Key's Flowers for Algernon. Roger Zelazny's And Call Me Conrad, also known as This Immortal. R.A. Lafferty's Past Master. Joanna Russ's Picnic on Paradise. Samuel R. Delaney's Nova. And Jack Vance's Inferio. Definitely something to put on the to-be-read list. Other recent publications from Library of America of note, 281, 296, 297, and 315. All of those volumes are Ursula K. Le Guin, edited by Brian Atterbury. So you get the complete Orsinia, the Hainish Novels and Stories, Volume 1, the Hainish Novels and Stories, Volume 2, and Always Coming Home, the author's expanded edition. Volumes 309 and 310 are Madeline Lingle, each edited by Leonard S. Marcus, the first being the Wrinkle in Time Quartet, and the second being the Polly O'Keefe Quartet. There have also been a couple of Library of America special publications. There was Edgar Rice Burroughs, A Princess of Mars, and Tarzan of the Apes, two volumes there, and even an ebook classic, Lafcadio Hearn's Some Chinese Ghosts. This has an interesting backstory. Hearn was one of the most extraordinary figures in American literature, according to Library of America, a journalist and a novelist, and a major literary icon in his adopted nation of Japan. He published Some Chinese Ghosts in 1887 as, and I'm quoting from Library of America, a stylized retelling of ancient legends, one of his earliest books, a foreshadowing of his later fascination with Asian themes. This collection of six stories reveals his deep fascination with the, quote, weird beauty, end quote, of Chinese folktales, end quote. So lots of things here to appreciate from Library of America, the last publication I want to mention, I'm not going to talk about in depth because that's probably somewhere down the road going to be another segment. <laughs> but uh, toward the end of 2018, there was a lovely volume that I highly, highly recommend called The Future is Female, 25 Classic Science Fiction Stories by Women, From Pulp Pioneers to Ursula K. Le Guin, edited by Lisa Yazik. And yes, that's definitely worth adding to your collection. And so, if in the United States, Library of America serves as a gatekeeper, I guess it's fair to say now that the gates have been thrown open, because we see some of the most important figures in the history of genre literature now getting their own beautiful volumes in this series. And I think that's very exciting. And I look forward to seeing what will be coming next. You can check out Library of America at LOA.org. And with that, I will bring my little tribute to <laughs> the gatekeepers, I suppose, um, to a close. I have something completely different planned for next month, and I look forward to joining you again soon with another look back into genre history. Thank you. And there you go. Amy, thank you so much. Have you watched... The the uh, the bridge. Oh man, oh, you got me into the dark, and I can't wait for that show to kick off again. That was just very clever. Do you know what I mean? Again, 
science i guess what probably for me one of the best science fiction shows i've seen you know the dark not the dark just dark i think it is just very clever just bouncing all around you know time and everything but oh so subtly done just beautiful to be honest beautiful so that is it that's enough. I bit me tongue there, it's really sore. Until next week, I would just like to say a good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.